who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, March 30th. It's not a bit, folks. I try my best to start this podcast in a different fashion each and every day. Try my best to be creative, but simply put... It was another fantastic day of tennis in Miami. We had our men's singles round of 16. We had the first half of our women's singles quarterfinals. And just from sunrise to sunset, you had fantastic action on the ground in Miami. Of course, some of the biggest storylines, certainly from the men's play. We've talked about them a lot over the past few months, really probably once a week since the tour restarted in August, but Sebastian Cord is the real deal, folks. He puts forward the best victory of his young career as he knocks off Diego Schwartzman in three sets to advance to his first ever Masters 1000 level quarterfinal, and I feel confident saying the first of many quarterfinals to come in his career. Of course, Ashley Barty with a fantastic performance knocking off Arena Sabalenka in three sets. A lot of us were talking about, or I shouldn't say a lot of us again, I don't want to attack straw men, but certainly there was a relevant conversation about should Ashley Barty still be the number one ranked player in the world, given that she didn't play at all last season over concerns related to the pandemic. Justified concerns, by the way, justified she didn't play, but, you know, should she still be number one given the emergence of, you know, players like Osaka, 23-match win streak, and Garbin Muguruza, who was so great to start the season, Sonia Kennan, who was so great last year wins a slam makes another final you know it was a legitimate question should Ashley Barty be number one well she's reminded everyone how she ascended to the number one ranking here this week putting forward a couple of fantastic victories again I want to talk about her win over Arena Sabalenka of course what we had eight round of 16 matches I believe five of them ended up going three sets so I want or excuse me four of them went three sets so I want to talk about those results talk about how it becomes clearer and clearer with each passing day, the next generation of ATP players have officially asserted themselves at the top of the men's game. Now, age-wise, that makes sense. We'll get into the numbers behind that claim in today's podcast and so much more. Of course, I'm not going to be talking about the Challenger Tour, not going to be talking about the college tennis world. Well, I will sneak in my thoughts on the rankings since the latest edition of the rankings came out yesterday, and that was after Chris Halioris, Matt Stokoyak, and I recorded our weekly college tennis breakdown. If you want to hear that breakdown, you can go find it on the Great Shot podcast feed, of course, later in the week. I believe that podcast is actually going to be coming on Thursday. David Gertler going to be joining me for an ATP Challenger to a recap pod. So again, we're covering all aspects of the tennis world right now. Of course, if you have missed any of our content, you can find it all on our website, crackrackets.com. And the reason we're able to produce so much content day in, day out, because of the support we get from all of you listeners, all of our 
Crack Rackets Patreon supporters and, of course, is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. Are you getting ready to play outdoor tennis? You should be. It's starting to get beautiful outside. If you need to update your equipment, new strings, new frames, new shoes, new clothing, whatever it may be, you can find all the best brands, all the best gear at all of the best prices. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order free. Two-day shipping and all on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, let's talk about the action in Miami. It's just going to be me steering the ship here today. Again, we are going to have some guests on the mini break podcast to talk about this Miami action later on uh, throughout the rest of this week. But the match we have to start with, the match of the day, Sebastian Corda, who just continues to put forward impressive result after impressive result. The 20-year-old American has risen from outside the top 200 to a new career high of number 64 in the live rankings over the past two years as he reaches the first Masters 1000 quarterfinal of his career with a 6-3-4-6-7-5 victory over Diego Schwartzman. Before I get into the match, I just want to read something I wrote for uh, about this match, previewing it yesterday for OutKick, which uh, is the out that we are writing gambling previews for for all of these Miami matches. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm previewing the match here, and I actually ended up taking Corda plus 130 over Schwartzman with the following justification. And just again, this is a little sneak preview. We're going to be writing for OutKick Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can find that on their website. But this is what I wrote because I think this point played out throughout the course of the match. 28-year-old Diego Schwartzman currently sits inside the top 10 of the ATP rankings and has already won an ATP title in 2021. His opponent tomorrow, 20-year-old Sebastian Corda, just cracked the top 100 in the rankings for the first time in his career, is playing in his first ever Masters 1000 level round of 16, and has never defeated a top 10 opponent. Given those facts, you may be wondering why Corda would be only a plus-130 underdog against Schwartzman today. The answer? Over the past 52 weeks, Sebastian Corda has simply been better on hard courts than Diego Schwartzman. Don't believe me? Here are some numbers to help make the case. Over his last 52 weeks of play, Sebastian Corda's gone 29-8 and overall, with a 23-7 and record in hard court matches. While 12 of those 23 wins came at the ATP challenger level, Corder's 11-5 record in ATP-level hardcourt events includes a run to the ATP-level Delray Beach final and victories over top 30 players in John Isner, Fabio Fognini, and Aslan Karatsev. Corda's also made 65.8% of his first serves, won 72.1% of his first serve points, won 52.3% of his second serve points, and held serve in 82.1% of his service games over that same time span. According to Tennis Abstract's stat leaderboard, those numbers would rank 7th, 26th, 22nd, and 20th amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. By the way, just for those of you wondering at home, all of those metrics better than Diego Schwartzman's serving metrics. Now to get to that Schwartzman piece, while Schwartzman's record, uh, record, well, hey, great shot. While Schwartzman's record of 26 and 14 over his last 52 weeks came against a tougher level of competition than Corda's, Schwartzman's gone 11 and 10 in his hard court matches over the past year. While six of those losses came against top 10 players, Schwartzman's career record of 85 and 73 trails his win percentage on clay courts, where he's 88 and 63, and reaffirms the fact that hard courts will never be his preferred surface. In terms of conditions of Tuesday's matches, the courts in Miami should benefit both players. The slow, high-bouncing nature of the courts certainly help a guy like Schwartzman as he significantly benefits from the physical brand of tennis that these conditions produce. However, the courts also play to Corda's strength, as they provide additional kick to his already exceptional serve and afford the 20-year-old an extra split second within rallies to make up for his lack of elite foot speed and track down his opponent's shot. Did anything 
Oh, let me go. The longer the match goes, the better it will go for the more physically developed Schwartzman. However, if Korda can land a high percentage of first serves, the borderline five foot seven Schwartzman will struggle to return any ball cleanly on these Miami courts. Korda's ground strokes are also the more powerful of the two players, and he will look to feast on any second serve Schwartzman offers him. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I apologize, but... Again, if you've been watching the tennis day in, day out, week in, week out on the ATP Tour, Sebastian Corda is not just a rising young star. He's already a top 50 player, arguably already a top 30 player on hard courts in the men's game. And of course, his big breakthrough result over the past 52 weeks was the fourth round he made at the French Open. And with this win over Schwartzman, again, 6-3-4-6-7-5, he advances to take the match to get to his first quarterfinal. He's now 30-8 and in his last 52 weeks. He's winning 80% of his matches, folks. He's doing it while, again, I I mentioned the serving clips. He's holding about 81% of the time. He's breaking serve about 29% of the time. And for those of you wondering where in the tennis abstract rankings would he be as a returner, because certainly you watch him play. I mean, Schwartzman was afraid to serve to... Korda's backhand because of how well Korda drives through that backhand return. He's six foot four, so you hit a kick serve to that backhand, you're actually offering him pace and angle to just bunt down on the ball. It's it reminds you of the Zverev backhand return, and of course we all again uh, know how successful he has been with that shot. But again, for Sebastian Korda, that twenty nine point one percent break percentage in terms of top fifty players on the ATP tour, that number right now would rank. At number 10, tied with Daniil Medvedev. So he's holding serve like a top 20 player. He's breaking serve like a top 10 player. And he's only 20 years old, folks. And again, I you look at the match. I said he had to make a high percentage of his first serves. Well, he made 62% of them, or excuse me, 61% of them, but he won 72, uh, 73% of his first serve points, 51% of his second serve points. Now, he was broken three times in the match, but... Let's give some context to those breaks. The big break came, of course, you know, there were two significant breaks. It's 4-5 uh, he's serving. He had almost broken Schwartzman, and they played a really tight game for Schwartzman to hold for 5-4 in that second set. When Korda gets broken, it's, you know, three. He, he didn't land a uh, first serve on the deuce side in the game. He misses all three first serves on that deuce side. He makes three forehand unforced errors, although I have to say the unforced errors he made were him trying to be assertive because Schwartzman just hit a return in the center of the court, was just trying to get the rally started. And so what Korda did was go big on that plus one forehand, and that was his play throughout the matches to be the aggressor. As the moment a ball was sat in the center of the court, forehand wing, backhand wing, it didn't matter. He was taking the ball early. He was changing direction. Uh, he was willing to move forward, and you know, in the game he got broken. And I believe he also, or in the game he got broken when serving for the match up 5-4 in the third set, uh, he missed an overhead. But, like, that's not going to happen frequently. He's going to make drop volley. You know, he's comfortable hitting that drop volley after he hits the approach shot. He's comfortable hitting the volley, the first volley, to the open space. And, you know, the forehand wing is definitely the side of the two that sprays. And in the first set, he had 10 forehand winners against 10 unforced errors. And that made sense. Because he was trying to drive through that forehand, trying to be aggressive. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier. Schwartzman, especially with second serves, was almost serving exclusively to the court of forehand wing. Because if you can jam it with pace, yeah, he'll shank occasionally. And that is the side he'll try to be a bit more aggressive on. He's really good at you can get pace to that forehand. But with his backswing, his quick racket speed, he can take it early down the line, almost like a half volley. That's one of his scariest skills. Skills, but, you know, yeah, that was the side Schwartzman identified it, that I have to attack that side with pace. I have to open up the court to that wing because if I can get him moving to the forehand occasionally, again, that's when the errors will come. But then there are times when he hits a cross-court forehand on the run and you're like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. And I've said this before, we did a, a full next-gen ATP podcast, an article on him in the offseason with David Gertler uh, but he is a f- he's Tomas and Diego Schwartzman. I think echoed this in the post match press conference. He's Tomas Burdich 2.0. He is literally a more fluid in the hips, slightly more creative. You know, again, when you get to the outer thirds of the court, he's willing to improvise. 
Tomas Burdich. And one of the sneakiest, scary skills, and I, I tweeted about this, is his backhand slice for Corda because his ability to drive through that ball and actually create depth and drive and not just, you know, an off-speed, low shot for his opponents to hit, but to actually be able to drive that and still create the normal effects of a slice, it's just special. The guy's got special racket talent. You still think, you know, you watch him play. He is still a little bit stiff, and Schwartzman did a really good job of getting him stretched, getting him into the outer thirds, making the match physical, but... Corda had bigger weapons than Diego Schwartzman, and the match was on Corda's racket. He was the one dictating. Schwartzman was just trying to stay alive and, again, extend rallies as long as possible because that was his only solution. He couldn't out-hit, he couldn't out-hit Corda, and for you know the 20-year-old American to be able to say that about him this early in his career, and I mentioned with the victory— up to new career high of number 64 in the live rankings. You look at Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings. He's currently by total ELO, I believe, uh, like the number, let's see, Sebastian Corda, number 36 by total ELO, uh, by yearly ELO, and it was updated before Miami. He's number 28, but he's probably going to be a top 15 player by yearly ELO rating, which, again, measures who you're playing, not when or where. And that feels legitimate. For the 20-year-old, I mentioned this yesterday, and so I, I apologize for repeating myself. He's entered the tier of the Shapovalovs, of the FAAs of the world. I don't know if I quite think of him yet like the Sinners and the, again, Zverev's, Medvedev's, and Tsitsipas, who have done it week in, week out now for over six months, who have done it really for 12 months, at least a year, but... I mean, you look at the talent, you look at the age, he obviously had a different developmental path than most, given that he won that Junior Australian Open. We've talked about him when he came on the Cracked Interviews podcast a few years ago, and then as opposed to taking wild cards into big events, kind of grinded on the challengers, on the futures, tried to find his game. I mean, he's got two professional sisters who are top, what, 10 golfers in the world. He's the son of former pro athletes. He's just... It's just all come together. He screams talent, and you can see how it's going to work for him. Now, again, credit to Diego Schwartzman, who did not go away in this match and just tried to put as much pressure in the match on Korda as possible, who created eight breakpoint chances for himself. Korda only created 11. You know, Schwartzman gets broken four times. Korda gets broken three times. Uh, But, you know... Korda gets an early break in the first set to go up to love. He consolidates the hold for three love. He doesn't get broken the rest of the way in the first set. Hold serves throughout. Uh, he holds four six four. Just again was executing so well on the first ball and being the aggressor. And anytime there's a forehand in the center of the court, he his ability to go cross with his own forehand approach, line with his forehand. It's just. He's got the entire skill set. He's got the complete package. The movement's not where it needs to be. And I'm telling you, when he learns how to use his legs even more on – learns, not the right way. When he engages his legs even more on his serve, he could be a top 10 server on the tour, and he could also be a top 10 returner. And I think that's the scariest thing if you are someone in the men's game right now is Sebastian Corda can do a little bit of everything. Schwartzman was the ultimate physical test – and he passed it with flying colors. So, again, a huge victory for Sebastian Corda, who, again, if folks, I'll, I'll keep saying it again, 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 again. He's the real deal. And I think that's what that, you know, that is what we continue to learn. Uh, one of the biggest takeaways, I suppose, from the past seven months of professional tennis. Let's talk about the rest of the Miami men's results now, because, again, that was we had eight round of 16 matches versus only two women's quarterfinal singles matches. So I'm going to, you know, stick with the men. Four three-set matches on the day. The biggest surprise of the bunch, probably Hubi Hercotz's 4-6-6-3-7-6 victory over Milos Raonic, although this was something I wrote for OutKick uh, as well uh, because I took the over two-and-a-half sets in the match plus 120. Though he carries a 9-12 and career record against top 20 opponents, Hubi Hercats has now gone three sets, including this Raonic match, in 9 of his last 11 and 15 of his 29 total matches against top 20 opponents. Again, 9 of his last 11 and 15 of his 29 total have gone three sets when he plays the best of the best, and that's because Hubi Hercats is 
the jack of all trades, someone who certainly plays to the level of their opponent uh, of his opponents because he can do a little bit of everything. Modern physical profile, six foot six, fluid, can slide on hard courts, can slide on grass, slide into his shots, comfortable hitting through the ball, comfortable moving forward, comfortable hitting slice because of his wingspan. He gets his racket on a lot of serves and puts a bunch of returns in play. You know, he's also got that big serve, and so he can play a little plus-one tennis when he needs to as well. He can just do a lot of things that would make Milos Raonic uncomfortable, and that's what he did throughout the match. You look for Hercats. He makes 67% of his first serves, 54 of 67, 181% of those points. Again, his willingness to move forward, hit that approach shot, whether it be a slice approach shot or a drive through the court, short angle, or again, drive. Uh, he can do a little bit of everything, and it didn't allow Rayonic, you know, he didn't play passive. He wasn't like, oh, if I can get this to a 10-shot rally, I'm going to win, because that's the kiss of death against me, Los Rayonic. Passivity leads to him running around the ball, hitting forehands, and when he's hitting forehands, you're losing the match. Now, for Milos Rayonic, you know, he was only broken once. In this entire match, it was that break he got. Uh, it was broken in the second set. He only earned one break of serve, and he only had two breakpoint chances in the match. And I think that's, again, where you have to give a ton of credit to Hubi Hercats, who created 11 breakpoint chances for himself. And he only converted one of them, but... You sometimes only need one because it's going to go. You're going to play one tiebreak against Milos Raonic, and likely the winner of that tiebreaker is going to win the match. And Hercats won the tiebreaker on this day, and he just, again, put so many balls in play. Whenever Raonic hit that big inside out, inside out, then inside in forehand combo, Hercats has the speed, the length to track that ball down and at least put a tough passing shot on Raonic, you know, make him hit a tough volley, whether it's just dipped low at the feeder, you know, just straight up drives the ball past and beats him to the spot. Hubi played a great match, and, you know, 18-13 and 13 in his last 52, he wins Delray Beach, he has all of this momentum coming into the Australian Open, and then he loses a five-set match to Mikhail Yimmer. He then loses his next match indoor on hard courts to Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, of course. He then... Beats Manorino, plays an incredible three-set match against Tsitsipas. Here this week, he's beaten Shapovalov, he's beaten Rayanich, and just, you know, he beat Rublev in Rome at the end of last season. He beat Dan Evans as well. He beat Sebi Korda earlier this year. We that That's a win that's certainly appreciated in value. He is someone who brings his best against the best. It's just about finding that consistency, finding that gear. I've mentioned this so many times about Hercats. I apologize for repeating myself, but all of the skills are still there. Uh, you know, he holds serve 81%. Uh, his, he, his break percentage is a little bit low at 22.4, but I think that's pretty low considering his return points. One is 36.7. So I think he wins more return points than he ends up converting break point chances. Uh, but, also, I, I'm still a big believer in Hubie Hercats. I still think more of his career than not, he's going to be, especially in the prime, he's going to be a top 20 player because his skills translate across surfaces, and he's just a really, really tough out. And again, it was a great serving performance for him, did all the things you need to do uh, to beat Milos Raonic, and ultimately now he advances, I believe, also to the first Masters 1000 uh, quarterfinal of his career, let's see, for Hubie Hercats, because he had that Indian Wells run a few years back, right? So that might not be right. Uh, for Hubie Hercats, for, nope, second quarterfinal run. See, I, I look it up. Uh, good job, Alex's brain. He beat Shapovalov, Nishikori, and Pui before losing to Federer back at the 2019 Indian Wells. So second career uh, quarterfinals at the Masters 1000 level for Hubie Hercats. Uh, your other just quick breakdown. Sasha Bublik continues to rock and roll, folks. Call him a serve bot all you want. I'm just going to keep calling him Nick Kyrgios with worse press now. Yes, he's 20-17 and 17 in his last 52, but 15 and seven, uh, fifteen and seven to start the 2021 season finals in Antalya and Singapore, both on hard courts. He also, you know, had a really uh, fun match against uh, Yannick Sinner in Dubai a couple of weeks ago. He's now beaten Laszlo Jir, James Duckworth, and Taylor Fritz six seven six three six four to advance to the first quarterfinal at a Masters 1000 event of his career. That one I'm certain of. And I mean, look for Sasha Bublik this season. He's holding serve 84.4% of the time. I believe 
you know, that's actually not that great amongst top 20 players, but let's see, for 2021, let's just look at the leaderboard. Let's see, service that way. I don't have to give you some sort of fake number. I can just say what I am seeing in front of me in terms of hold percentage in 2021, not the last 52 weeks, 2021. Sasha Bublik's number actually surprisingly low he's not a top 20 server in terms of hold percentage but you look at first serve percentage of points one Sasha Bublik is the number nine uh in terms of percentage of points one on his first serve you look in terms of percentage of points one on the second serve Sasha Bublik I think this is where he struggles a little bit because of the high you look at the double fault percentage leader uh in terms of just straight up individual double faults Here's your top five right now. Karatsev's got 63. Benoit Pair's got 68. Martin Fucevic has 69. Jeremy Shardy, 73. Sasha Bublik has 101 double faults right now. Now, that's actually not the highest double fault percentage on tour. That belongs to Benoit Pair, but it's the second highest double fault percentage on tour, and that just speaks to his aggression. He's a guy who goes for broke, and sometimes that gets him in trouble on the days he doesn't have it or on the day he's playing an opponent who's patient enough and has the weapons to take it to him that you know he plays one sloppy service game and that's the match but those sloppy service games are further and further in between now for Sasha Bublik and he only played really one sloppy service game against Fritz and it was at 5-4 I believe in the first set when he got broken he also got broken serving for the match up 5-2 in the third but Fritz made a bunch of good returns in that set was able to extend the match and it was really funny to see Bublik be the patient one in a match because Taylor Fritz is not the greatest of movers. And I think Bublik kind of figured out, okay, if I can just get him extended to the outer thirds, you know, if I can hit two or three shots in a row to the backhand corner, I have, I'm in a, and then I can make that fourth backhand down the line, I'm going to hit that shot as a winner. And I just have to give myself enough margin. I just have to be patient because if I can, you know, his ground strokes to the open court against Fritz are hit hard enough that you, he hit a lot of winners in this match. And, you know, again, he had success attacking the Taylor Fritz second serve. You look at the stats in this one, Fritz, 15 of 28 on second serve points. He did a really good job of minimizing those second serve points played. But, you know, Bublik had six break points in this match. He converted on five of them. Meanwhile, he fought off eight of the 11 break points he faced. You know, on the margins, this was a match, 101 total points for Fritz, 98 total points for Bublik. But Bublik raced out to that big lead in the third set, That getting that double break, just staying locked in there. That made the difference. And again, now you look for him in the live rankings for uh, Sasha Bublik, the 23-year-old, up to a new career high of number 42. He's been better than that. And I think the new ELO ratings will reflect that. I think, he, you know, legitimately he's been a top 30 guy here to start the season. Uh, and that's a testament to the 23-year-old's talent and the fact that his his uh, effort's not the right word, his I suppose just his ability to piece together all of the talent he has on the court. uh, It's all starting to work for him. So again, Bublik, three-set win over Fritz to advance to the quarterfinals. I'm going to rapid-fire through the rest of these men's matches uh, quickly. Just, you know, Isner, Bautista, Goot. A John Isner match is a John Isner match. Shocked. I think that's the first tiebreaker he's lost in Miami since before the 2018 event. And first one he's lost at Hard Rock uh, Stadium or whatever it's called. But look, Isner fought. He scrapped. He made the most of the perfect conditions for him. He hit that kick serve and was literally on top of the net. He was able to run around returns and go big on his forehand. But Bautista Gutz a scrapper. Bautista Gutz really confident right now. He made a ton of extra balls in this match. Did a great job of just trying to keep his return low net clearance. You know, keep that ball at the Isner feet. Certainly not give him those high sitters, which John Isner puts away now 98 out of 100 times. And you Isner deserves credit, by the way, because there was a point when he was legitimately not a good volleyer, and he has become a more than competent volleyer. I don't know if I'm ready to say good, but more than competent and good enough for his game style. Although, fun fact, folks, with this loss today for, and I should say the victory for Bautista Gu, but with Isner not defending his Miami Finals points, John Isner drops out of the top 30 of the ATP rankings for the first time since August of 2011. That was the fourth longest streak active on tour after Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, 
and Novak Djokovic. Again, who has been the fourth most consistent player in the top 30 since August of 2011? Not Federer, not, or outside of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. It's not Rayonich, it's not Goffin, it's not Dimitrov, it's John Isner, who's going to drop out of the top 30 first time since August 2011. Taylor Fritz will be the highest ranked American man come next week, and he will save Americans from not having a top 30 player for the first time in the open era, as he will still be inside the top 30, but folks, that's the end of an era, and that's really, really crazy to think that, uh, you know, again, John Isner has been a staple these past 10 years, and you may not love his game style, you may not, you know, love some of the things he says off the court either, but you have to admire that consistency. It's a testament to, again, his hard work, his continued development. It's a crazy stat, though, for American tennis fans. And then I just want to point out one other thing. And by the way, your other winners on the day, uh, I mentioned the Bublik three-set win, 6-7-6-3-6-4. Your straight-set winners, uh, you know, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, they continue to roll for Medvedev. He just out physical Francis Tiafo 6463 Tiafo just didn't have a weapon to hurt Medvedev with which is crazy to think uh Pass 2 and 6 he's just a physical animal now on these courts track down everything Sinego threw at him and was more than comfortable hitting through his backhand against the inside out forehand of Sinego Rublev going to Rublev 6464 over Marin Cilic uh and then Yannick Sinner I mean he belongs in the FAA category. There's no, I, I don't know what the equivalent of Serena Williams' power tennis neighborhood is in men's tennis, but Yannick Sinner would be a. I I call it it's the it's the airplane test, right? Does it sound like an airplane's taking off when you're hitting the ball? For Rublev, the answer is yes. For FAA, the answer is yes. And Yannick Sinner belongs in that group now. I mean, his forehand seems more and more dynamic. He gets better and better at moving the ball around the court with his backhand, and he produces so much drive on both of his shots. And to have that sort of drive uh, coupled with the sort of topspin he's able to produce, it's just special. He looks half an inch taller every time I watch him. His movement gets better and better and better. The guy's a freaking stud. And he played checkers. Emil Rusevori was playing chess, whatever the metaphor is. Rusevori, I'm a huge Rusevori fan. I think he's a half a step of fitness away from becoming a consistent top 30 player, particularly on hard courts, given his weapons. But Sinner got him stretched to the outer third. Sinner did such a good job of moving his backhand around the court. Sinner did such a good job of preventing Rusevori from setting his feet, from camping or, you know, on one side of the court or finding his rhythm within rallies. And, you know, again, Yannick Sinner's just the real deal, folks. He's inside the top 30 with this victory for the first time in his career. And to be honest, I don't think he is going to fall out of the top 30 uh, any time in the next decade at least. So should be very, very, very uh, – again, it should be a really, really fun set of quarterfinal mash it, matches. It's Medvedev versus Bautista Gut. By the way, Medvedev's never beaten Bautista Gut 0-2 in his career. Sinner versus Bublik, the rematch, as I mentioned, from a few weeks ago. Korda versus Rublev, probably the two of the five hottest players. You'd say Karatsev, Rublev, Korda. Two, you know, those are maybe your three hottest players in men's tennis, so that's delightful. Herkat Tsitsipas is always delightful. And by the way, seven of the eight Miami Open quarterfinalists, next-gen guys. Nine of the 15 ATP-level events held in 2021 have been won by players born 1996 or later. Do they still have to prove it at the majors? Of course they do. But that generational shift everyone's been waiting for in men's tennis, it's happened, folks. And I talk about the next-gen all the time. I wrote about this earlier in the season. We saw a similar trend in terms of the titles won last year. You think guys like Ugo Umber, who was so great at the end of last season. Obviously, Alex Diemenauer won a title to start this season. I could list on and on and on and on. The jump of Rublev. Uh, these next-geners are studs, and they haven't done it at the slams, but they've done it everywhere else, and that should count for something. And so, again... Those are your ATP Miami quarterfinals. Should all be exceptional matches. Let's switch gears now. Talk about the women. Only two of them on the day. And, you know, I suppose both matches ended in the players who were the top seeds holding seeds. But, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. There's no more entertaining player right now in all of tennis, men's or women's, than Arena Sabalenka. Every match she plays is fireworks. 
works. And some of that has to do with her game style. She hits the ball so big, and when she's connecting with the ball well, doesn't matter who she's playing. It can be an inform Muguruza. It can be an inform Osaka, an inform Serena. She's probably going to take a set off of them. She's probably going to be in the match. Of course, there's also going to be a 15-minute stretch where things go horribly awry, where she makes 15 errors in a span of 25 points. And, like, her added, you know, she starts to get mad with herself and she starts to yell out there on the court. And it's just, it's must see TV. And so it's not a surprise to anyone to learn that her match against Ashley Barty yesterday must see TV. Barty, a 6 4, 6 7, 6 3 victory. But this is a match, folks, that fe- featured two breaks of serve. In the entire match, Barty saves all seven break points she faced. Sabalenka only faced four break points in the match, was broken on two occasions. But, I mean, for both of these players, I'll do the Barty splits first on her serve. She made 64% of her first serves, won 73% of her first serve points, 68% of her second serve points. That's freaking ridiculous. And her ability to play plus one tennis, if she gets a forehand with the first ball, you're screwed. Because she's going to go cross court with that forehand, and then you're going to hit it back to her forehand, and then inside out with her forehand, and then she's going to move forward and hit the volley to the open court. You know, even if you can get that return to her backhand wing, her ability to then slice that ball to the open court, or then when once she's lulled you to sleep, hit through that backhand and drive it down the line... She's just, there's a reason she's top five in the world, folks. We may have forgotten after not seeing her in 2020 and seeing so many other young players emerge, but the road at every Grand Slam goes through Ashley Barty until said otherwise. Because Yeah, except for hard courts, goes through Naomi Osaka. But it's also going to have to go through Na- Ashley Barty because she is that good. She's just so fast and just uses that speed to both play exceptional defense but then beat you to the spot and play offense as well. And she's got the hands at the net. She's a former doubles Grand Slam champion. And just, you know, again, her backhand slice, she it gave Sabalenka fits. She prevented Sabalenka from hitting the ball cleanly in her strike zone where she wanted to hit it. And just, you know, she would go down the line, cross court, down the line, cross court, short angle, all of these different things to just keep Sabalenka from provide uh, from finding her rhythm in her Sab- in Sabalenka's return games. And I'm saying, again, it for Barty, it started with that plus one ball. Not that she hits it always for a winner, but she uses it so well to control the direction of the point. But what made this match so much fun is... Maria Sabalenka was like, you know what? I don't really care about that. I'm going to hit through the ball anyways. I'm going to do my thing. And what I loved about Arena Sabalenka's game plan is she was not afraid of the Ashley Barty forehand. She went cross-court to the Ashley Barty forehand so that she could open up one of her favorite shots, which is her forehand down the line. And, oh my God, did she hit some incredible forehand down the line winners in this match on the run, on the stretch. She also... I think hits the, you know, Ashley Barty hits a phenomenal short angle cross court forehand. They had some short angle cross court forehand exchanges where they, you know, three, four in a row short angle baiting the other person to take the down the line um, that were just special. Like, that's the only word I can say to describe them. They really were. And we saw every shot in the books hit in this match. Again, the problem for Sabalenka, you look at the stats, she hit 40 winners to Barty's 28. But she also hit 47 unforced errors to Barty's 22. There were just too many lapses of time where she would miss a very makeable return or she would get a plus one ball and that ball or just an an attackable ball and that ball would just go a little bit long or right off of the net tape but into the net. And look, that's sort of the margin she plays with. She goes for broke. She plays to win. She plays on her terms. If I tell anyone you can go 40 winners against 47 unforced errors and only be broken twice, you probably win that match the majority of the time. The thing for Arena Sabalenka, we know how good she is. She's better than everyone else except for the best of the best. And unfortunately for her now against Muguruza in Doha and Dubai and here against Barty, she just... The errors got the best of her. She wasn't able to sustain her best tennis throughout the duration of the three sets. And why I continue to be fascinated by Arena Sabalenka is because if she does figure that out, if she is able to play her best tennis unimpeded for two consecutive hours a day for two consecutive weeks, she will win a Grand Slam. Her ceiling as a player is that high even when compared to the best of the best. 
the thing is, and again, this is why Ashley Barty was such a great matchup because, or because Barty's got the speed to track down what Sabalenka throws at her. She's got the variety to disrupt the rhythm of Sabalenka, and she's got the firepower to hit Sabalenka off of her spot. And yet, Sabalenka was seven of you know was two conversions away of a break point from being right back in this match and potentially winning it. And so, this was just such a fun match and it was two players really playing uh their some of their best if not their very best tennis and I think that's why it's so exciting to be a women's tennis fan right now is because you know it's Barty it's Sabalenka it's Fiontech it's Kennan it's Halep it's Muguruza it's Osaka it's all of them Andrescu who's still alive in this event Svitolina who's still alive in this event I can't believe I didn't mention either of them Sarah Zariba's Tormo has been exceptional of late they're just and it's just like, if I told you Sabalenka would have won this event, you wouldn't have felt robbed. You wouldn't have been like, okay, but did the best player win? No. If I would have told you Muguruza won this event, you'd be like, okay, but did the best player, or, you know, you would have said yes. It's like, if I told you Muguruza, you'd be like, did the best player win? Yes, they did. It's just, they're all exceptional right now. This was an exceptional level match. I think it's worth noting, Arena Sabalenka, I think, has played the three best women's matches of the season. Her two, or I guess three of the five, her two against Muguruza. And then this one here, I also think Muguruza's played two, uh, three of the best five, her two against Sabalenka, and then her match against Osaka in Australia. But, I mean, this was a, a really, really fun match. And again, it's a credit to Ashley Barty, who just can do everything on a tennis court and is a top five player. I think she's reminded everyone, no, 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 no. I am a top five player. If Osaka's 1A... And Muguruza's one B. No, I would. It might even be like, well, Muguruza's so good. I'm just saying those three right now: Muguruza, Osaka, Barty. Those are your three that every tournament runs through. If any of them are in the draw, I do. I'm not going to spend as long on this, but I do want to quickly mention the result of Alina Svitolina, Svitolina six three six two into the first Miami court, uh, semifinal of her career. I talked about her consistency at length last time, but just her ability to move the ball around the court in this match, her ability to, you know, you don't think she's got incredible firepower, and then Sevastova hangs a second serve, and she blasts in a 100-mile forehand return winner by Sevastova. She's, or, Svitolina's just... Really freaking good, folks. Like I, I don't know how else to how else to describe it other than she's really, really good. She can just do a little bit of everything, and it's not quite as dynamic as Ashley Barty, who with the slice, with the heavy topspin forehand, I just think there's a little more snap to everything. I don't know why I actually snap, but I do think there's a little bit more snap to everything Barty does compared to Svitolina. But I mean, three and two into the semifinals, she's a stud and. Yeah, it was it was a really high quality, high, a very efficient performance from Alina Svitolina to advance. Uh, and now tomorrow we get two really fun uh, quarterfinals once again in Miami. You look at the two matches we have. It's going to be Naomi Osaka taking on Maria Sakari. It's also going to be Sarah Cerebus Tormo taking on Bianca Andrescu. Of course, Osaka enters the match against Sakari on a 23-match win streak. But Maria Sakari was sneaky good, folks to end last season. Talked about her a bunch then, but I'm expecting that to be a fun match because I believe the last three times they've played and in like four of their five career head-to-head, Sakura and Osaka have gone three sets. So I think Osaka wins, but I also think that match will be a lot closer than expected. With that in mind, two quick things just to run through before we wrap today's show. New ITA and USTA college tennis rankings are out. Let's start with the USTA version, as I am fortunate enough and flattered to have been asked to be a voter in the USTA Tennis Channel poll. We have a new number one team for the first time on the season. Well, maybe not the first time, for the second time, I guess, on the season. New number one team in quite a bit of time, Florida. 
the number one ranked team in both the USTA and ITA men's college tennis polls. Now, North Carolina drops to number two in both of the other polls. It goes Tennessee three, Virginia four, Baylor five. In the ITA polls, it goes Baylor three, Virginia four, Tennessee five. In the USTA poll, rounding out your top ten for the ITA rankings, since I suppose those are the more relevant, goes A&M, Texas, TCU, Mississippi, South Carolina, so, of course, that SEC love continued for the college rankings. USTA is slightly more accurate, in my opinion, right now. It goes Texas 6, Texas A&M 7, Michigan 8, Ohio State 9, TCU number 10. You know, uh, UCLA will be happy to see that they are tied for 19th in the USTA poll versus brutally underranked in the ITA poll. Arizona only up to 17 after they knock off USC and UCLA last weekend. USC is actually 16th right now in the poll. Illinois can't buy any love. They're number 12 right now after they knock off Michigan. Ohio State number 19. Michigan number 24 right now. I mean, UCLA is right now at number 36 in the computer ranking. So I suppose that is getting better, but you know, Mississippi 9, South Carolina 10, Georgia 11, Mississippi State 15, uh, Kentucky 22, uh, you know, LSU 31, Alabama 35, Arkansas 39. Who I think Vanderbilt's the only team in the SEC not in the top 50 right now or right around that. It's like, it's crazy to think. Um, but, <clears throat> excuse me, those are your updated men's rankings. On the women's side... It was a bit of a snafu. There was a tweet that said Texas is the number one team. That is not the case. North Carolina is still a unanimous number one uh, by both the ITA and USTA rankings. Now, Texas is number two according to the USTA rankings and uh, the ITA as well. You also have Georgia, Northwestern, Ohio State, Florida State, Pepperdine, Virginia, Baylor, and UCLA rounding out the computer rankings when done by hand. Georgia's number three, UCLA four, Pepperdine five, Florida State six, Stanford 7, Ohio State 8, Virginia 9, and NC State number 10. In terms of the notable, I suppose, uh, singles and doubles rankings, Daniel Rodriguez deserves credit for beating Will Blumberg. Is he the number one player in the country? I'll leave that up to you to decide. He's ranked number one according to the singles rankings. He's followed by Habib, then Duarte Valle, Gabriel DeCamps, Val Vashro, Soderlin, Draxel, Andrade Soto, and Alistair Gray. Round out your top ten. Some of the freshmen, Johannes Munday, Dr. Vaughn, Jeffrey von der Schulenberg, 12 and 14, respectively. Gustav Strom, number 15. Michael Braswell, a freshman, number 16. Uh, so those are all interesting, but then when you see guys like Galarno, 22, Kukerman, 26, uh, Blumberg, who hasn't, oh, Kovacevic, 44, Blumberg, who hasn't been great this year, but, you know, down to 61, and, you know, Andrew Fenty, unranked in the latest edition, don't love that on the women's side, I think the women's are more accurate, like, Katarina Jokic, is that good? Kenya Jones, Sarah Davatella, Estela Perez, Somariba, Emma Navarro, McCartney, uh, Kessler, all these girls are that good. Abby Forbes, number 11, that's probably a hair low, but she is that good. I don't see uh, Ashley Leahy, but she's been really injured this season. I don't see, you know, Jessica Faila at number 14. That's probably more accurate. Alexa Graham belongs in that top 10, but she just hasn't played that many matches this season. She's at number 37. I mean, Michaela Gordon, a little probably low currently, given where she is, I think, for Stanford, number 48, but... Yeah, it's they're getting better is what I'm trying to say. The reason I bring up the rankings is because another week in the books, they are becoming more accurate. Uh, the last thing I just want to quickly mention, because certainly it's been a big topic of conversation on tennis Twitter, uh, Ben Rothenberg this week at the Miami Open Press uh, has been asking players their their stance on getting vaccinated or not. I had a fascinating conversation with Bethany Maddox-Sands when she joined me a few weeks ago or months ago at this point. Who knows? I think it was around the Australian. So I think it was like six weeks ago at this point. Um and, you know, we I asked her if she thought she was – if she would be willing to get vaccinated, if she thought there was going to be hesitancy amongst players to get vaccinated. And, you know, the sentiment that Ben has gotten from his reporting, the sentiment I have heard from my various uh, conversations with not just players at that level but players at the challenger level and just across the board is, yeah, I think there's a sneaky amount of vaccine hesitancy amongst this group. And I want to say this very, very clearly – 
get vaccinated. Scientists are scientists for a reason. You're being conspiratorial. There's nothing wrong with wanting to read about the science for yourself, but I, I assure you the federal government would not be legitimizing a vaccine if two years from now all of us are going to have smallpox. Like, come on, what are we doing here? They're Whatever, again, get vaccinated if you have the opportunity, especially if you're listening to this in the United States. It's becoming more widely available for a broader amount of the population. I know I just signed up for my vaccination appointment. There's your public service announcement. Anyways, uh, vaccine hesitancy, and look, a lot of it comes down to the culture you were raised in, the beliefs you hold, and I'm not going to tell someone their beliefs are right or wrong. I know I just did a go rant. My strong belief, if you have the ability, go get vaccinated. Trust the scientists. But there are a lot of players who express hesitancy, who perhaps their experience with government experience uh, experiments like this have not been as favorable or whatever it may be. I don't want to justify anti-vaccine uh, beliefs because, again, I, I truly am a believer in this vaccination and all vaccinations. But... I'm I'm just telling you, no one should be surprised that this sort of hesitancy has been expressed because you hear it across levels, not just the top of the top pros, but any pro you talk to. Uh, and that's certainly concerning given the fact that tennis, perhaps more than any other sport, travels to so many different countries and is as global of a sport as you can get. And you do wonder, let's say, come Australian Open, I, I know this has been discussed in reporting. Some There might be a policy, like if you're not vaccinated, you have to be here two weeks in advance to quarantine. If you are vaccinated, you can show up the Tuesday before the event. And it's just like that is a significant impact for a bunch of these players. And that is a lingering – conflict's the wrong word – but issue – that will have to be solved. So credit to Ben for having the huevos to ask that question. It's a very personal question, but it's one that needs to be answered because if the tour is going to go back to normal at a quicker rate, it probably behooves to get as many players vaccinated as quickly as possible. We've seen other sports leagues position themselves to do it. Again, what tennis, the HP, the WTA, what they're able to do, if they would even be able to facilitate a broad vaccination of players, I don't think so. But uh, it's absolutely something to keep an eye on. But that's everything that's gone on over the past day in the tennis world. Again, matches continuing on Wednesday. Uh, I believe we've got quarterfinal action for all four men's matches and then two quarterfinals for the women. Of course, it's going to be, as I mentioned, Osaka taking on Maria Sakari and Drescu taking on Sarah Saribas Tormo for the men. Only two quarterfinals, excuse me. It's Sinner versus Bublik, Medvedev versus Bautista Agut. So... Should be a very exciting day of tennis. Of course, if you have missed any of the action in Miami, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order. Trying to think if I'm missing anything. Of course, again, great shot podcast on college tennis and the Challenger Tour coming up this week. We had fantastic cracked interviews with Michael Costa. If you haven't had the chance to listen to that please be sure to go check that out. And again, all of the content available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. But with that in mind, for our wonderful super producers, Flinger and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening. Uh, see, I'm screwing up the mini break. That's what happens when you go 51 minutes on your own, folks. You lose your brain by the end. But you know what we say. That's the break. And we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.